Hey guys, welcome back to Down the Line. It's your boys Sagar and Sean. And today we're joined by Dr. Bruce Gowards, Surgeon-in-Chief, Chair of the Department of Surgery, Vice Dean for Academic Affairs, and Vice President for International Services at Cedars-Sinai Health System in Los Angeles. Dr. Gowards, it's great to have you with us. Oh, my pleasure to be here indeed. Awesome. So after graduating high school, you were in Penn State's five-year combined BSMD program. So it seems that you kind of knew early on about your interest in medicine. So when did you realize you wanted to go into medicine and what drew you to vascular surgery? Well, I was really fortunate when I was in high school, I got to participate for two summers uh, in being between my sophomore and junior and junior and senior year in National Science Foundation programs. Uh, first at a place called Hahnemann Hospital, which no longer exists in Philadelphia, uh, in which I got to do uh, neurosurgical uh, research. And then for my second summer, I got to go to Roswell Park, which is a great cancer center in Buffalo, New York, uh, where I uh, did immunologic research on cancer. And it was very clear to me, I had a lot of interest at the time, but after those two experiences, I was just really taken by medicine and research and, and wanted to be part of it. Could you tell us briefly what your day-to-day life looks like? <laughs> well, before COVID, uh, maybe maybe be the best place to start. I, I One of the great pleasures of my life is that I, I do so many diverse things that I have a hard, hard time getting bored with it. Uh, so uh, I generally get up around 5.30 in the morning to work out. I find that if I work out in the morning, I, I, it invigorates me for the day. And uh, it's my personal time. You know, nobody but the dogs is up with me and, and uh, it, it, it gets me off on the right start. I generally uh, get to the hospital around uh, 7 or 7.30, depending on what's going on. And on... Uh, my operating day is uh, usually Wednesday or Thursday. On Tuesdays, I see uh, outpatients in my office. And uh, the rest of the time is spent uh, uh, doing uh, either academic work, which I really enjoy, or more likely uh, interfacing in a wide range of administrative problems. One of the things that I do get to do in, in all my roles is uh, recruit and hire a lot of people uh, particularly physicians, but not limited to physicians for Cedar sinai uh, So on any given day, I might have, you know, two or three sort of interviews with prospective uh, hires. And uh, it's off very interesting. They're, they're very interesting people and, and uh, it, it uh, is uh, stimulating for me. So you just touched on it, but for our listeners, can you talk about what work goes into growing a department, especially a new one? Yeah, well, nothing's more important than the people you get, right? I mean, um, like any athletic team or, or anything, it's, it's the individuals that are there that, that make all the difference. So I, 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 I learned that and I intuitively understood that. Uh, and um, I, I really spend uh, a tremendous amount of my time thinking about the people that I want on our team. And uh, the culture of your institution uh, is, is what's key. If you build that culture in the right direction and everybody understands it and commits to it, and it's sort of nurturing, you'll get the most out of every person. And then if somebody really 
great that you have happens to leave because they get picked for a leadership job somewhere else. You should celebrate that and know that your culture will ensure that whoever you get to replace them will be every bit as good. So there, there's just nothing more important than the way we treat each other and the kind of quality people that we have. And, uh, you know, it's uh, if they if the people are enthusiastic about what they do, if they have high quality and aspirations and if they have a high level of integrity, I mean, you almost can't miss. So kind of transitioning now into um, your later life. So you authored one of the best selling books on physician leadership, The Best Medicine, A Physician's Guide to Effective Leadership. What should undergrad students do to improve their leadership skills, um, especially those interested in the medical field? Well, you know, that's a great question because, you know, in the old days, being a doctor uh, was was a very solitary profession. No one had much of uh, influence on what you did and and you didn't have to interface so much with other uh, physicians. You, you, you were like providing care like Marcus Welby one-on-one. With the complexity of, of the kind of medicine that most of us practice, it's really critical to have meaningful and positive relationships with the doctors you practice with and the people, nurses, and other uh, technical people that you interface with. So being a loner as a doctor uh, doesn't work nearly as well now as it did in the old days. So, uh, you know, I don't know how to how to prepare this, uh, prepare yourself for it. But one of the most important things is to learn to listen and get interested in other people. And particularly when, you know, you're an arduous, uh, you know, pre-medical program and, and your performance in organic chemistry is being uh, scrutinized so carefully, uh, try to uh, get away from that mentality time and again, and, and understand that um, observing other people, learning from other people, understanding other people uh, is uh, is really an important skill set to get. And I was fortunate to develop it eventually, uh, but uh, you know, the the sooner you 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 develop it the more successful and fulfilled you'll be in your career. So transitioning to issues within the healthcare system, something you've talked a lot about in the past is patient satisfaction. And with recent studies indicating that one in three patients claim they've had a bad experience with either a provider, hospital, or pharmacy, how can future physicians improve patient satisfaction within the healthcare industry? Well, you know, it's a really simple uh proverb, right? Treat other people as you'd like to be treated. And for those of us who, uh, you know, as you get older and you need more medical care, uh, it's amazing how being on the other side of the stethoscope, if you will, uh, changes your attitudes to the way you, you know, interact with patients. I had a, a bout with breast cancer about 15 years ago and, you know, became a patient. And uh, up until then, I was very healthy, never had a serious health problem, and it was a totally different uh, perspective. So the best way to please patients is to visualize yourself in their position. And what would you like? How would you like to be treated and talked to? And and do your best to provide that for your patients. And it's obviously not just your attitude toward patients. It's the whole you know system that the patient has to enter before they even see you. 
But keeping that in mind, I think, is, is the real key to uh, getting uh, greater patient satisfaction. So healthcare disparities in vascular surgery have been known to exist for years as people categorized as black have a nearly twofold greater risk adjusted rate of leg amputations. Um, and blacks, Latinos, and women have hemodialysis initiated via autogenous fistula less often than males um, categorized as white. So what can surgeons do to address these disparities? Well, those are extremely troubling and, and very true uh, observations. Uh, it has to do with the empowerment of those folks. You know, they, the, they, they tend not to demand uh, the care. They tend to be uh, intimidated at times and, and become too passive uh, in their acquiescence to what physicians want to do. Uh, whereas uh, higher uh, socioeconomic levels and people who feel more empowered in, in our society sort of demand the right care and they, and they seek it out. And they, uh, for too long, uh, others have felt intimidated by the healthcare system. So anything that we can do, first of all, it's our responsibility, obviously, uh, to uh, provide the same level of care. And we need to reinforce that. Those of us who are lucky enough to be in leadership positions need to reinforce that uh, for everyone. And uh, we need to try to make our systems less intimidating and so the patients can be better informed and, and they can, you know, feel uh, powerful in, in uh, advocating for their own care. Right. And another, um, you know, like troubling public health issue is the amount of uninsured people in, in the United States. And Texas actually has the highest percentage of uninsured people. So does fixing this problem require changes in politics or is it insurance companies that need to change? Well, insurance companies are exactly what you say. They're companies, right? And they're going to try to maximize their financial gain. We've definitely seen some improvement in California with the, uh, you know, the Obamacare, uh, you know, and as it's evolved, uh, we've seen uh, better insurance rates and the provision of uh uh, care to people uh, being somewhat eased uh, by them having some kind of insurance, um, but but there needs to be you know a greater uh, imagination and a success at um, addressing this. And as you guys doubtless know from your well-informed questions, a lot of this has to do with the sort of accident that. Part of being employed in this country uh, is, is having health insurance. It's, in fact, one of the reasons why some people work, even though they don't have to, because the health insurance that they can obtain through their employer is so economically advantageous uh, that they, they're not going to stop working. <laughs> and as far as I understand, you know, other, you know, countries in the EU and places like that, I mean, that, that's just not a mechanism in which a workplace uh, provides health insurance. So it, it's a very difficult uh, discussion because people like myself and others that are fortunate enough to have, you know, fantastic healthcare uh, policies through our employer, we're not so uh, enthused about giving that up. But somehow that link is what has driven us to where we are today. And um, 
many people that have jobs but don't have benefits uh, are tremendously disadvantaged by that lack of health insurance. So you have written in the past about physician burnout and the pursuit of happiness. Um, A recent landmark study of members of the American College of Surgeons revealed that 40% of responding surgeons screen positively for burnout and 30% screen positively for symptoms of depression. Um, What do you think is the driving factor for all of this and how can surgeons and more generally physicians avoid burnout? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a very pressing question. And, and I like to sort of uh, <clears throat> postulate it from the other side, a more proactive side. Because burnout, uh, and, and it's a term that we all use because it, it gets to the point. It also implies that something is happening to me. You know, it's sort of like I'm a victim of this. I like to think about rather than, you know, how can we avoid burnout? How can we chase and and succeed at getting fulfillment within our work? Because it really is up to each of us to to do our best to craft an environment that whether we're studying or doing a sport or doing a job, that we find it fulfilling. And I think that that physicians uh, too often feel like they're they're sort of on a, on a train that they're not driving. When in fact, um, we really do have a tremendous amount of um, uh, ability to direct uh, our lives. And, you know, we see this in, um, in uh, decisions that young physicians are making in terms of what kind of work environment they want. Uh, as you guys doubtless know that uh, physicians are often put on very prospective um, uh, payment systems where they, they get paid for each widget that they do, which in our field is called a RVU or a relative values unit, which defines, you know, sort of physician work. And, you know, the relative value units for sitting with a uh, patient and discussing complex medical decisions are pretty low. But the relative value unit for me taking somebody to the operating room and doing a procedure on them is pretty high. So it's no surprise that physicians become ingrained to do procedures and they feel like they're on a hamster wheel where they need to continually uh, produce RVUs or their compensation will fall. We need to break that, you know, alignment. We need to uh, to to as physicians together uh, refuse to be labeled uh, uh, people on an assembly line and rather uh, look for more uh, and broader measures of our effectiveness in caring for patients. And I believe that if we are successful in that, if we each take stock of what we like to do and do our darndest to do more of it, uh, that, that the incidence of burnout will be less. So earlier you mentioned the RVU system, which is used in determining physician performance and compensation. And you wrote in an article in 2019 in the JAMA talking about how a change to the RVU system is long overdue. So what would the ideal physician compensation system look like today? Yeah, I think, you know, those are, that is a real, uh, really difficult question. And you know, I really believe that people that are closest to the physicians have the best idea, uh, even if it's subjectively, 
of, of the value of that physician's care and how, how um, hard the physician is working to deliver that valued care. By that, I mean, uh, as chair of a department or head of a section, uh, you really know, you know uh, how people practice because you're practicing there next to them uh, day by day. You're seeing their interactions with uh, fellow employees, other physicians and patients and families, and you can assess whether they are um, really exemplifying the best elements of our profession. So I guess what I'm saying is that the more we get highly objective about this, like batting averages, uh, the less uh, we'll be able to see the true value. And as you know, uh, in, in baseball now and in basketball, they, they, they have this very interesting measure, which is the, uh, the value that you add to the team by being on the field or the court. And uh, we have to start thinking about that. Uh, rather than uh, specific individual measures. And, and as well, I, I feel that if I'm going to be paid by how many patients I care for that stop smoking cigarettes, it, it, it's, it's just, a, it's in my view, a very um, arbitrary and indirect way of measuring my impact because everyone is free will. And I can argue most persuasively towards someone stopping smoking, but if they're not going to stop smoking, that they're, they're not going to stop smoking. And I mean, it's just a very uh, perverse uh, way of measuring my effectiveness. Um, so kind of transitioning a bit, you wrote an article in the past on how surgical residency programs need to start adapting for the teaching of millennials. Um, on the flip side, what is like some advice for millennials going into surgery and what should they expect in residency? Well, you know, um, people that, that enter in professions and surgery and medicine, you know, it applies to it. You know, they need to, to be really enamored and motivated uh, toward that field. Because as a professional, uh, historically, you know, there are many times when no one's looking over your shoulder and you have to have an inner uh, peace and integrity about what you're doing. So what you know, what I would say is that as someone entering into surgery, uh, you, you need to be sure that you really love the act of surgery and the impact that it has on patients. And you want to do everything you can to sustain that feeling of accomplishment when you do take care of patients. And, um, you know, I, I was fortunate, as you pointed out earlier, to start my residency as a very young person. I started my uh, general surgery residency when I was 22 years old, and I was filled with tremendous idealism and energy. And it got me through, uh, you know, what is generally a, a very difficult four or five years uh, because of the energy that's required to be expended uh, to get through a residency. And, you know, as every athletic coach always told us, that attitude is everything. There's a metaphor, you know, if you're climbing a mountain and it's uh, sleeting and snowing and it's cold and the wind is blowing and the pitch of the mountain is great, would you rather be climbing that mountain with someone who's complaining all the time or would you rather be climbing that mountain with someone who is, like you, determined to make it through and get to the top? And I think the more that you can surround yourself 
with people who are positively motivated, the more likely you're going to enjoy and get through an arduous task like a surgical residency. Awesome. Um, so transitioning now to, um, you know, healthcare as a business. So you're on the board of directors for a healthcare investment fund called Summation Health Ventures. And for a lot of our listeners interested in the business of healthcare and careers related to healthcare specific VC or PE firms, can you talk about what led you to this position and what exactly you do for the company? Well, uh, Summation Health Ventures, which is we're sort of segueing out of that into a pure Cedars Health Ventures area. Uh, has has several criteria well, why we would get involved with a company and invest in them. And the criteria are that, number one, that we can do something to make that product better, that we can contribute to it through beta testing or application in our facility. And uh, number two, that if we do make it a good product, that we indeed would need it and would use it. So we're, we're very much uh, committed uh, institutional investors in that the only reason that we invest in something is not to make money per se, but rather to find something that would benefit our practices, whether it's our business practices or our clinical practices, and something that we could contribute to. So I really like that, you know, sort of mantra. And uh, I also uh, have become convinced that our involvement at Cedar sinai in the uh, nurturing of new healthcare businesses has sort of activated all sorts of imagination among our faculty, our residents, and our staff because they become involved in it. As an example, one of our companies in uh, summation was a, uh, a retractor that you could put in wounds that would infuse antibiotics into the wound during the time of surgery. Because it turns out that if you can increase the antibiotic level in the tissue around where the incision is made, it's much more resistant to contamination, for instance, for colon surgery. So I picked one of our bright young surgeons and I asked him if he would like to be on the board of that company, that we had a board seat because of our investment. And uh, he, he got on the board, he contributed tremendously uh, to their uh, development and their marketing and their thought process about the device. And it sort of activated him to, you know, be involved with other companies and bring companies to us that had uh, really good ideas. So I really feel like, you know, nobody knows better than the mechanic what kind of wrench uh, they would like to use. And uh, in surgery, the same thing pertains. And in medicine across the board, if you can get cardiologists and nephrologists and surgeons involved in innovating in their areas, if we can predispose to that by investing in these companies, we're going to find better solutions for patients. Hmm. So kind of going off of that, you've attained like many positions of leadership in healthcare settings. First of all, do you think having an MBA um, is necessary to attain these positions? And what kind of experiences would be the most valuable for understanding if pre-meds would be interested in healthcare, like investment funds and leadership settings? Well, first, let me comment on the MBA, and then you, we can clarify the second question. Um, I really deeply respect uh, the value of business schools. I was associated and am still teaching at the University of Chicago uh, Business School. And some of my 
best advice I've gotten from professors at the business school, and I've really profited from from those kind of interactions. Having said that, um, I'm not certain that an MBA is required to do any of this, but you need to incorporate the sort of thinking process that the MBA generates. I think we all understand that if you go to medical school, if you go to law school, if you go to business school, uh, the, the really valuable part is that you, you learn a way of thinking about things that's specific to those disciplines. So you, you don't need an MBA, but you damn well better be respectful of the principles that MBAs use. And I found myself learning a lot from the MBAs I worked with, and I sort of got a, you know, bootlegged an MBA from, from learning from the people who had such degrees and experience and, and learning from the way they approach their problems. So I always try to include them in uh, whatever discussion I can because they bring a really great perspective to it. Okay. Um, and, and the second question was mainly like, what advice would you give a pre-med student interested in medicine, but also interested in the business of healthcare? Yeah, well, I, I, uh, that, now I understand it. Uh, and I think that's an important question. I think that when you're a junior in a profession, there's nothing more important at the beginning than to become expert in your field. And I think that if you short circuit into too much of an orientation to business too early, before you've really had the experience, uh, you'll never develop the, the maturity uh, within your core discipline. That said, once you've developed that expertise, whether it's five years after training or 10 years after training, it's very invigorating to take that expertise and in this case, apply it in a different avenue like business. So I would say, you know, do one thing really well at the beginning. And then uh, once you've established yourself and feel very confident in your skills there, then's the time to diversify your activities and business is a great way to do it. Perfect. So we want to end on a fun question for you. In 1993, you served as the script consultant and medical advisor for a film called The Fugitive starring Harrison Ford. Can you tell us about how you found yourself in that position and what the experience was like? Yeah, well, you know, the director of the film, Andy Davis, who's remained a, a long-term friend, was shooting this film in Chicago, and uh, he had lined up Harrison Ford and, and Tommy Lee Jones and a bunch of other uh, top flight actors. And, and unfortunately, they were a little short on their script. They, they, uh, they, they didn't really have the intricacies of the script done, and whoever they entrusted it to initially was not producing. So they brought in a guy named Jeb Stewart, who's a brilliant screenwriter and, and ended up being a producer as well. And uh, they were in Chicago and somebody introduced them to me and, and over a dinner uh, at an Indian restaurant, uh, the four of us, Harrison Ford, uh, and the writer and the director and I sort of plotted out the movie on a napkin. So, uh, you know, without, you know, at the price of an Indian uh, dinner, uh, I got engaged in, in, in doing this and had the great good fortune to be part of a movie that turned out to be a huge success. And uh, they even uh, shot a cameo scene for me in the movie that, that made it into the uh, final cut of the movie. So 
I became a member of the Screen Actors Guild for a while. And uh, it was just a very interesting uh, and enlightening process. I happened to do it with some of the best people in the world, uh, with Warner Brothers, which was a first-class organization, and uh, with a producer and a director that, that really uh, put together a tremendous product. So it was it was a trip and a half. It it changed my life in some ways. It gave me a whole different group of friends from the ones I had, you know, established in my medical uh, uh, hierarchy. And um, it, it it in a funny way sort of ended up, uh, you know, predisposing me to move out here to Los Angeles simply because I was out here so much that I became more comfortable uh, visiting here. And I noticed that the winters were a lot warmer out here in L.A. than they were in Chicago. Wow, that sounds like it was a lot of fun. Um, but it seems that our time is up, Dr. Gorich. Thank you so much for speaking to us. And it was really a pleasure getting to know more about your story. Well, it's my pleasure. All right. Thank you guys for listening. We hope you enjoyed and we'll see you in the future. Peace. Peace.